How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 245. We have a 245 at East 24 in Montgomery, Bailey's Bar and Grill. Oh, what's that from? Oh, you've definitely seen this film. I definitely have. It's a, it's a police scanner to two police characters that are they're quite immature police officers, actually. Is it 21 Jump Street? No, close. I'm, oh, I'm bad boys! Super, no. super bad, super bad. Mm. Seth yes. Rogen and, and Bill Hader. I forgot it was Bill Hader. Okay, yeah. Well, that's that was, good. That was the call. I think that's when they go to the bar. The guy's drunk, and McLovin's in the back of the car. Ah, yes, yes, McLovin. We love a good McLovin. We should do that on the podcast yeah. one day. Yeah, we should. We should. There's a, a lot of uh, cultural, historical significance behind that film. Hmm. Much like the film of the week, Jake, do you have any <laughs> good trivia from the film of the week, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring? I do. And I'm really glad having watched this film, I answered my own question from last week as to, I thought there was only one ring, there's what, 20 rings in actual fact, so there's that. Um, no, my fun fact has to do with uh, one of the several techniques used to achieve the many height differences between mm-hmm. all the different characters, in particular the Hobbits. Of course, uh, many of those included body doubles, uh, duplicate sets that were all resized and rescaled, stilts, simply just kneeing, (laughs) which works. But um, regardless of all of that, there was still a a criteria of height because not all of them could be uh, digitally shrunk, or they could, but it wouldn't look very good. Mm. So I think the standard was set by Elijah Wood, who is, of course, five foot six in height. And that was sort of the average height for the Hobbit characters, which... Is ironic because that's my height, so I could have played a Hobbit. There you go. Could have, would have, should have. The Hobbit is <laughs> not in this film. Can but... I confirm that I was five foot six when I was two years old and they were making these films? Yeah, yeah. I, you could I could have, just pretend. Yeah, could have been one of the little Hobbit babies <laughs> in the in the Hobbiton part. I know the the birthday scene. I could well, be one of the little children. I really like your your trivia there, and it, it sort of Ooh. plays into the authenticity that a nineteen ninety nine film undertook. And we'll talk about probably a lot of the details, particularly behind mm. production context, is very important. One of the really interesting things, and I did mention uh, the extended cuts last week. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, mm. um, but obviously you can achieve, you know, get these extended cuts with um, additional behind-the-scenes content. I, there is okay. there is as comprehensive material on those extended cut box sets of them making Lord of the Rings as there mm. are the film itself. I've never seen a film have this level of... of um, look into it, and this might play into sort of Peter Jackson's admiration and even personal execution of, of documentary. Mm, um, it might yes. reflect that he was really wanting that sort of um, behind the scenes look to building such a massive universe. Yeah. Um, because, you know, look, most films have 30, 40 minutes, something like that. I mean, over the three films, I think there's like. God, there's at least 12 hours of content there, right. which is insane. And it it follows from the conception of the idea to going to the Weinsteins to try and mm. make two films. It evolves into three films. Yep. Like, it goes through the full evolution as well as looking at the author's impact or even, res- like, the fact that he probably wouldn't have wanted these films being made. And that's such an interesting mm. thing to I have. do read something about Tolkien's family being upset with the films, which baffles me. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I know they sold the right, or, the, or he sold the rights to it quite a while ago for not a lot of money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's probably just like a resentment from that. But you're right with Peter Jackson. I mean, this is a director's corner. So it's a mm-hmm. good way to introduce that. And like you said, even more recently with his Beatles documents, uh, documentaries that have come out, but then even King Kong, like the fact that his team went out of their way to essentially quote unquote, recreate a lost scene from the original King Kong just out of love for the original film. Mm. So yeah, I think you're right. Peter Jackson has this deeply rooted love for film and cinema and all the work that goes into making such cinema. Yeah. And I was able to take a peek at one of these documentaries. I watched about 20 minutes from the Fellowship of the Rings documentary and it's like wow man it's extensive it's ridiculous and it pretty much goes through all three of them with that much detail yeah of course um it obviously shifts focus this first film's definitely about sort of the developing of the cast their relationship with one another which does lead me into my uh film facts so during filming of particularly the fellowship of the ring um the fellowship and it's interesting because if you do watch the uh extended sort of documentary aspect mm. behind the behind the scenes us they were as particularly in this first film because of the story they were all together in this film yes um and they all took up surfing which is a you know here in australia and new zealand is is quite a common pastime and Amongst uh, one of them who was uh, taking up surfing was Viggo Mortensen. Now, you made the joke about the breaking of the toe. Um, <laughs> Last um, week, But yeah. um, this was not the only injury that Viggo, uh, a.k.a. Aragorn in the film, uh, found himself injured, who wiped out terribly and one day bruised uh, the whole side of his face. The next day, makeup artists tried to mask the bruising and swelling, but were unsuccessful. Instead, Peter Jackson... Or Sir Peter Jackson. Yeah. Sir Peter Jackson, yes. Um, opted uh, to film Mortison from one side for the entire scene. It's in the Mines of Moria. When they find the tomb, Aragorn is seen um, only from one side in that whole scene. Oh, very or, clever. Um, chosen to be lit in certain ways. So, um, very interesting. Um, there are other very quirky ones, like with your height. The fact that John Reese davies is actually the tallest <laughs> of the Fellowship <laughs> cast at 6'1", but plays a dwarf. Um, but look, there's so much to talk about with Mm. the formation of this, this cast, which is one of its, you know, when it comes to these massive saga driven, um, ones. And although there are only three films with the Lord of the Rings, whereas there's like eight films with the the Harry Potter ones, Mm. these films are extensively long detailed. And and I think their cast is, is still very important that for a lot of them, this was a career defining role for most of them absolutely and and i do even though i have a, a much stronger affinity with harry potter than i do lord of the rings as, as part of my childhood i can still watch this and be like holy moly the casting is just excellent much in the same way i think the casting for the harry potter films is also excellent mm. so was this something about the early audies where they were just nailing these sci-fi not sci-fi sorry fantasy i think of sci-fi because i compared this to star wars in some ways um and i know george lucas has said a bunch of stuff about peter jackson sir peter jackson in the making of these films. But no, the casting is immaculate in all of these early Audis fantasy, uh, high-concept fantasy films. Mm. So, no, I completely agree with you there. Well, before we jump there, Jake, have you caught anything mm. in the last week? I caught a couple of things, actually. Ooh. I'm very proud. Outside of, uh, like, 70 more episodes of The Big Bang Theory, because I just got to tick it off. <laughs> just got to get it it's, done. It's tough. It's tough. But you know what? We're getting there. Dean Norris showed up at one point. That was cool. Okay. Very good. Actually, we rewatched Barbie as well, me and Kirsty. That was quite fun. Interesting. Yeah. No, I think that's a quick revisit. 
it was a quick re- revisit. I mean, it still hasn't come to Blu-ray yet. It's out on digital, so it is available now, which is good. But, um, yeah, it was interesting to watch it again, almost a bit removed from the hype, almost a bit removed from the surprise of it, because there were, even though we sort of knew going in that it was going to be a lot more than just what the first 10 minutes of the film eludes. Mm. Oh, here's a straightforward Barbie narrative. It's like, no, it's going to go a lot deeper into, well, social commentary and, and gender identity and all, all of these things. So it was interesting to watch it again with knowing what I was getting into, mm. so to speak, because this was, yeah, the only this, I never saw it a second time in cinemas, for example, much like I really wanted to. Um, yeah, no, I still quite enjoyed it. It still flows really nicely. The dance numbers are great. It's still very funny. Um, yeah, I think I almost, when we did the Barbie podcast, it was almost a little overwhelming of like, wow, like there's all these different things. I don't know where to start with and having rewatched it, it's like, I feel like the film is so much more simple mm. than we were almost giving it credit for in terms of its through line of, of themes of identity and whatnot. So um, it was a nice little rewatch. But there were two films I caught for the first time recently. They're both relatively fresh films. Okay. I watched Elemental, the new Pixar film. Interesting, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I didn't know what to go into this. I didn't have any high expectations. I think the critical reception has been that it's okay and that Disney, Pixar are sort of on this... I feel like they're losing a lot of their identity, something that they really strived with in the first, I guess, 10 to 20 years um, of films that they made. And I think that's especially the case now where everything's trying to be Spider-Verse and Disney and Pixar are sort of still in there. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe what their style is. And there are little interesting things in the animation of this film. Like uh, all the characters are essentially particle effects because Elemental is about this city uh, that's uh, completely inhabited by creatures of fire, water, earth, wind. Uh, so it's very much, here mm. are the four elements that encompass this city. And, and it really takes that sort of Zootopia-esque vibe. And, and the whole film is really this colourful parallel of the immigration experience of how um, these fire characters, they come in and they, they build their family and they build this store that relies on their um like quote-unquote authentic abilities and there's a lot of cool stuff in the animation where they're um where for example like a pipe will burst with water and their way of dealing with that is to literally like weld the two ends of the pipe together to block the water coming so there's like cool little details here and there or the fact that um there's one point a fire character gets their photo taken and the photo is just overexposed like they can't see themselves in the photo so there's lots of cool little details like that that sort of mask what would otherwise be like the disney pixar animation style mm. that i think i don't quite know if it exists anymore um but not everything needs to have that fast-paced hyperactive spider-verse style and, and i like pixar's previous film uh turning red because it did have quite a few different like anime styles it seeped into the regular style of the mm. film this one goes back to being a bit more traditionalist and, and straightforward and again that big parallel of the immigration experience uh, the Romeo and Juliet story of the two main characters, one's fire, one's water, can they get together? Um, and I, I thought the film was okay from that standpoint. I didn't think their relationship was as, like, gripping or as emotionally resonant as, like, Wally and Eve in, in well, in Wally, for example. Yeah. Um, but there are great moments in there. Like, a lot of the driving question is about them literally, like, going to hold hands and what's going to happen when they hold hands. And uh, even the poster sort of represents that, idea of like what's going to happen and without spoiling it i thought it was just a really cool moment how they do it how it's animated how Mm. it's stylized 
Uh, so there's there's a lot of nifty little things to like in this film. Ultimately, I thought it was okay. Yeah, like kind of seldom in the middle. Yeah, exactly. I I, I think as much as I appreciate, again, the immigration uh, experience and, and the themes that are in the film, I think it sort of dominated the characters and the story, which I think is something that Disney Pixar really excelled at earlier in their filmography. Mm. So, yeah, I thought it was totally fine. Uh, the last one I watched, or I technically watched this first, is called uh, uh, Linole- Linoleum. So I think somebody did do a tiling. I'm not quite sure. And um, anyway, I wanted to watch this for a few months now because it stars the almighty Ray Seahorn. She's in this film. And uh, it's a very strange, sort of dreamy, ethereal film. It takes place in this small Idaho town, I think the 80s. And it's about this uh, family where the, the main dad is... Uh, like a TV scientist and astronomer and he loves science Mm. and space and all sorts of things. And what I love is that as the film progresses, you sort of realize he's more of a loser than you initially realize where it's like, Oh, he's not like this classic, you know, Bill Nye uh, personality that was on TV. He's actually, it's actually airing now. It's, it's his current job and he's struggling at it and it airs at midnight. He shoots it in his garage and now he's potentially losing this job uh, to a lookalike who's also played by Jim Gaffigan. So there's a little bit of a Nick Cage uh, twinning yep. adaptation vibe going on there, and the film continues to be even more weird as it as it dwells into that. Um, and then there's also little side stories with Aaron and Nola, who uh, Nora, who are the the daughter and sorry, the wife and daughter respectively. Uh, and it kind of all funnels through this idea. The quote that they use is that the the two differences between people are astronomers and astronauts people who look at the stars and those who swim in them and that's sort of their overall comparison and shows like the journey all these characters go on from uh that maybe they're having academic success Mm. or career successes and realizing that it doesn't align with the things that they when they were children wanted to be when they grew up and going with your gut and your feeling and so there's a lot of interesting stuff like that in the film um i also found it a bit strange because there's a lot of weird like editing pacing jarring awkward beats to the story a bit of stilted dialogue every now and then and i couldn't quite tell if that was just part of the film's sort of quirky nature yeah or if that was just like lack of experience from colin west the director who's made a couple of films but by no means it has been around for the last 30 years like maybe a peter jackson has for example so i was sort of spending a lot of the runtime wondering is this inexperienced or is this like purposely quirky or but I will say the ending, without spoiling it, it kind of slaps you in the face the same way that the Ladybird ending does. Where for me, I was like, oh, wow, okay, now I understand what this film's all about. And it really does make you sort of rewire the entire hour and 40 minute experience you've just had with this film. So I thought it was really interesting. I watched it on, was it Stan? So what's oh, on you to watch it? Well, simply Racy Horn was in it <laughs> from Better Call Saul. That, that's all. She's she's excellent. That's all it takes. She should be in everything, but um, sadly she's not. It's actually on binge. I remember because I stole your binge to watch it. Excellent. <laughs> the cycle has been completed. I know we've done the full one eighty or yes. three sixty either way. Yeah, we've swapped. Uh, we've replaced roles, <laughs> much like the film that you just talked about. Oh well, there you go. Well, see, what have you been watching last week? Look, I only caught the film of the week in terms of films, but I have been watching a Netflix series that I just finished today. And look, I will talk about it because I I think, to be honest, it's 
it's really impressive um, for what it's trying to achieve. It's something that you sort of sit there and go, you know, you, you kind of wish that you would, because I would have loved to have done a similar thing and mm. just weren't, wasn't proactive enough or, or just didn't kind of capture the lightning in the bottle. And this is that mm. thing, you know, you have an idea and a seed and chances are someone else will have that idea and will obviously spur on to uh, go on to create it. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, so it's Netflix doc, a docu-series called Wrestlers. Okay. Um, and obviously anyone who uh, knows me or knows me even from the show ha- knows that I have a massive love for professional wrestling. Mm. Um, in fact, in the last week, they an- announced a WWE uh, pay-per-view event to be a at Optus, yeah, in, isn't uh, Undertaker going to that? It's speculated, so Ooh, it's it's on it's the road. The it's a pay per view that's on the road to WrestleMania. That's cool. First time an Australian pay per view has ever happened, like ever, and then on the road to WrestleMania. So, and of course, it's here in Perth. And if I don't get a ticket, boy, am I going to be salty? Oh, I can tell. Um, <laughs> but um, look, it's a fantastic uh, seven episode show that follows. Um, basically the Ohio Valley wrestling company um, who are hemorrhaging money under new management. And basically uh, it follows a season as they go around the Kentucky area, trying to basically become a profitable business. Um, Any fan of of professional wrestling knows that OVW at one point was the uh, sort of breeding ground, the, the, the main training promotion that, um, some of the most world-renowned wrestlers went through before going on to WWE. John Cena, Randy Orton, uh, Dave Batista. So these are these wrestlers, some of them now Hollywood stars that we talk about oh. from a film point of view, um, actually learnt all of their fundamentals that they needed in WWE at OVW. And um, But now uh, they now have their own promotion in, in Florida and... Um, so basically developmental through those two big companies, AEW and WWE doesn't happen in these regional territories like it did back in the day. OVW is the only other live TV promotion that, um, so it's a a strong third place in terms of it's a a Goliath gulp between the, the two. And basically it just explores those sort of the world, but it's so interesting because, um, the promotions now run by, Al Snow, who was a famous wrestler from the Attitude Era time, yeah. Um, but the way it sort of shows is basically this: this company is not making money, is on the verge of closing down, and needs this one last season. Otherwise, yeah. it kind of so it's kind of caught at the perfect time for a doco. And mm. I think it explores, you know, like things that we liked with what Aronofsky did in his film is it did show us a little bit of the world behind us, but it still has its Aronofsky sort of, um, existential crisis aspects to it. It's not as it's real, but it's not as real as a documentary where right. you're really fundamentally exploring, uh, sort of what this level of wrestling and what professionalism it yields. And it's a big difference. It's like, when you're at those more local regional levels, it's like the level of professionalism, you know, they're not getting drug tested. There's, they're, they're all these uh, crazy larger than life characters who are also got these in- incredibly deep and traumatic pasts. And it just, it, 
really encapsulates kind of what I think one of Netflix's strengths is. It's hidden strengths is um, its exploration into sports. Mm. I think that they're so good at it um, and they've worked out that formula better than any fictional dramas. I think the real spine of what Netflix has going for it that people like and appreciate the most are there sports documentaries or docuseries? You know, Last Chance You, Cheer, um, you know, those untold docuseries stuff. You right. know, I think that honestly that's what they're best at. Um, and the staff that they've got working to it or, or at least the the producers finding these, you know, selling these rights to these docuseries, you know, they're making good investments in them, right. um, I think. Um, I don't think any of the other streaming services do it as good as they do. I will say, it's, it feels like it's been a while since Netflix have had, like, an array of, like, here are all your best picture noms for this year. Yeah. <laughs> like, 2020 maybe was the last time we had that, and... Yeah, I, I I'm not saying it might be not a money maker. Like it's definitely not on the, the level of Stranger Things financial success. But sure. critically, and I think where they really do capture the best stories is exploring these sort of sport worlds. Because mm. it was the premise from set out from the first episode is like enticing to even someone who's not a professional wrestling player. We're watching this sport entertainment business that has all these colorful characters. And basically, they're in financial ruin. If they mm. can't find a way to be sustainable, they won't exist. And they also show us all of the history of this promotion. This promotion's 40 years old mm. and it will die. Anyone can kind of get invested in that story. You yeah. know, a business that's had history on the verge of collapse. And, that, and like you said earlier, it's like, if you did this 10 years ago, there isn't that urgency or like fear of death in terms of a business. So mm. you're right, they kind of picked the perfect time to to nab it it's kind of like all the you know those blockbuster documentaries right at the very tail end of their existence you're getting all these yeah. documentaries that come out and well of course because that's the most like dramatic part of its entire existence absolutely absolutely so i ended up being a very enticing seven episodes went by like that um yeah give it a look give it a look Ooh. give it a chance interesting especially because i feel like so many people come in with uh like their preconceived notion, oh, professional wrestling's fake, this, that, and the other. Right. Oh, it's cheesier, it's for children. And, but you got to give the documentary a chance. Like, I've watched stuff on, like, gymnastics, and it's like, I would have mm. never watched gymnastics live, but it's a documentary that has, like, an enticing... It's finding the drama in the sport. Exactly. Yeah. Bang on the money. Very nice. But that's all I watched in the last week. Fair enough. Beautiful. Are there any career updates you've had? I'm on you're, holiday. you're on holiday, which is yeah. excellent. Yeah. And you're going on a holiday. I'm going on a holiday tomorrow. So there you go. That's enough. Just go to the wrong show. Like... Oh, you are. Nice. Yes. Yeah, looking forward to it. Excellent. I feel like me and Kirsty have to do at least one time. You should. I mean, you got a week, like even when you get back. You That's could, true. Because um, the last time I went to the Royal Show was high school. Yeah. I think I went one year in high school, which was great because it was like that. Even then, that was like, I haven't been in years, and now I've got like all these new friends I'm going with. So, yes. it could be the same vibe. Friends are great. Friend, friends are great. Friends. We'll tie this into the Lego movie. Everything's awesome. Hey, but do you have any friends that would follow you into the depths of Mordor and to the, the summit of Mount Doom? I don't know. I mean, do any of us have a friend as, as uh, loyal as Samwise? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, I guess it's time for us to talk about the film of the week and our latest director's corner. But, Jake, what's the film? Oh, and who's the director? 
Did a really I'll, I'll do it all the way around to, yeah. to, to ease us into it. Reverse we're, it. We're covering Peter Jackson's wider career and his showstopper, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. Believed lost for centuries, it has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? This is the One Ring, forged by the Dark Lord Sauron. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He's seeking it. Seeking it all. His thought is bent on it. No one knows it's here, do they? Do they, Gandalf? The weapon of the enemy is a gift. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The ring must be destroyed. It was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. I know what I must do, but I'm afraid to do it. One does not simply walk into Mordor. There is no other way. Frodo, who has found the One Ring that belongs to the Dark Lord Sauron, begins his journey with eight companions to Mount Doom, the only place where it can be destroyed. That or my toilet. Really? Yeah. Is that what you call Mount? Your toilet is Mount Doom. <laughs> my toilet is Mount Doom. God. That's its side hustle. Is dealing Excellent. with me. Uh, that horrible thought started one of <laughs> probably the most anticipated conversations in this show's history. Finally yeah. doing Lord of the Rings. After many, many years. We talked a little bit about Lord of the Rings on our Wizard of Oz episode. Because mm-hmm. that was the first time I watched the films. And I did the, the, the I was going to call it a montage. I guess the binge, the marathon. Back to back to back. But I watched the theatrical version, Zeke. Mm. Not, not good enough. Not good enough, Jake. Um, so I indeed, for the first time today, watched the Fellowship of the Ring extended edition. Excellent. And I, I tell you what, I was a bit relieved to find out that the last twenty-seven minutes were just credits. I was like, oh, good. And not, not because of the quality of the film. I'm just sick as a dog today, as you may be able to tell, audience. Uh, so it was a. <laughs> That's very fair. 19 minutes dedicated to the Lord of the Rings fan club. That I mean, that's kind of cool, is it not? 
that they've like wedged. I guess it's like an mm. online fan club thing for Peter Jackson that they've just wedged at the end of the credits there. Which yeah, I can't. I, that's kind of cool. I, I don't know. You're probably right. I can't say I've ever watched the extended cut and then watched all of those credits. I think when it hits to the black screen, I've, I didn't oh, realize just, there was. Yeah, I didn't realize there was a fan club, and you might have in previous well, years. Well, the reason I checked is because I was getting conflicting reports of like oh it's 30 minutes more footage than the original which is just under three hours so why is the the menu coming up three hours 48 minutes so that's why i just checked i was like what's going on then that's when i realized oh the credits are like super super long fair so that makes a bit more sense but... i know where the extended cut points are so okay you do see i couldn't i i had like a feeling i'm like oh, i'm pretty sure this scene i've never seen before but it's been long enough and mm. the fact that I've only seen these films once before today, that I I couldn't tell you what was new necessarily. Yeah, I don't think a film. I don't think there's been a film that has been in burned and entrenched into my mm. mindset other than this trilogy. I think. Wow. And the weirdest thing is, it's probably been, I would say, three to four years, maybe longer, since I've sat down and watched any of these films. Yeah, well. So it's been a really big hiatus, and I've never looked at these films through a critical lens. Right. And I think that that's sort of... Coming into it, I was almost scared. I was a little scared, because I was... Oh, there was no way. It was All of a sudden, it's bad now. There's yeah, no maybe not bad, but it's like... <laughs> I put these on, like, heavenly pillars. Sure. Like, I think these are, like, the epitome of blockbuster filmmaking, I think... I love, there's part of me, the little patriot in me, loves that they're, they're a conglomerate of um, predominantly, I'll, I'll admit, Kiwi actors, but sure. there is a good strength, a good amount of Australian influence in the film too. Mm. Um, just that idea that this film is just cemented in, in New Zealand culture. Yep. I'll admit, you know, obviously I knew so much about the history of the, particularly the first three films that a lot of that stuff that is now up in New Zealand that you can go visit is not sets from the original film it's from the hobbit um because oh, interesting. a lot of the stuff was taken down because they didn't know like new zealand didn't know how synonymous it would come right um with lord of the rings and if you watch a lot of if you ever have the time to the extra 12 oh, hours or whatever to, yeah. to watch it you'll see things like you know they, they built rohan or they built weathertop or they built all of these places that they visit and that a lot of them had to get torn down mm. because New Zealand's like, well, we're obviously not going to leave it there. We don't know what the reception of these films are. Right. We're making them. Um, and, like, you have to imagine, like, the, the absolute gamble that these films were, not even just from the financial standpoint. I mean, they were given essentially, what, 300 million, um, would it be pounds or euros, or, or maybe it was the USD, I'm not too sure. It would sure. have been USD because it's wine. wine right, American-funded, but obviously shot and edited in, in New Zealand. You're right. Um, that's a lot of money to put into essentially one project and sure that we're going to release it as three separate movies with so many different re-releases and the, the DVD and VHS versions and all of that. But especially, I think now we are spoiled as audiences and especially you look at like the Marvel stuff and then you're right, even Harry Potter, which started around the same time in, excuse me, in 2001, but obviously extended much further into 2010, 2011, I think yeah. it was when the last one came out. Um, which good timing for the Hobbit to come out. Well, there's <laughs> even a, and there's even a baton pass, you know, as the third film's coming out, Pirates of the Caribbean starts, you know, right. like, and that is important to talk about, but, you know, we'll talk about, um, we, we want to keep our, our conversation focused to Jackson as a director and obviously particularly the first film, but 
it is interesting because it kind of yeah it's got a lot of other moving pieces but at mm. this time like you said the Audis, it was they just seemed to hit the perfect castings and and not just that these big franchise films didn't feel saturated or mm. fake they felt authentic they felt like the director really got a speaking voice yeah. in it you know these authentically are jackson films and just as the the first particularly the first i would say four harry potter films have an authentic director voice mm. in them whether it's yeah, Columbus. I think that there definitely is an argument that David Yates sort of uh, almost sterilized it a little bit, the, the tone of it. But um, you're right, especially with Christopher Columbus and Alfonso Caron. And I think it was Mike Day that did the fourth one. Great. Which fourth one? Yeah, fourth well, one. Nice. Excellent. I like the fourth one. Oh, very good. <laughs> that's for me. That's where Harry Potter, yeah. I can't care less. But, but to your point, day. it's like in 2001, we were so unused to the idea of these big franchise films. Like, sure, sequels existed, of course, and trilogies existed. But um, the, when you look at uh, Star Wars, when you look at mm. Back to the Future, you look at all these big you know, trilogy franchise films, they have endings. And they are relatively... Um, the first films are stories that could be told in isolation and to people that are then satisfied the end. And, and this film very much ends on a note of like, there's still so much more to tell. This is not like a, conclu- there's arcs in mm. the film that conclude within the film, but I can imagine an audience, especially those who aren't like huge uh, Tolkien fans or Lord of the Rings fans at the time, they're just watching the, you know, the big Christmas movie of this year. And the way it ends like, Oh, what? Like, what? What's going on? I can totally understand that, and then eventually learning, like, oh, it's a trilogy, and these are yeah. essentially um, block shot films or all shot simultaneously. Yes, uh, very close. I think Fellowship has a, the only is the only one that has a little gap between it, but two and three are right. like directly shot with each other. Yeah, because of the events of the first one, and and particularly that's when uh, storylines branch out. Mm. Um, we go from one linear narrative into parallel timelines in the second film and yeah. um and in the th- and continues into the third film well my question to you is and you sort of teased us last week Zeke, that the fellowship of the ring may be your favorite of the trilogy yeah, i th- i think it still is i think that there are do you think that's the reason is because this is quite a linear story all the characters are together and you know what i found interesting going into this film and the, the worries that i had were um and admit, I, I did watch this, in quotations, with Lucinda. Mm. She became very uninterested pretty quickly. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Now, yeah. I'm okay with that because I think for a lot of people being new to the product, you know, at the end of the day, and I said this to her, I went, you can op- you only open yourself up to a film if you open yourself up to a film. If you yeah. go on your phone in the first five minutes, you're not opening yourself up to the film. Mm. You're closed booking. And that's not me talking smack about it. In fact, it's probably a cultural problem that we're starting to have oh, more absolutely. and more. But that, is, that's literally a thought I had watching this, especially the extended run, is you have to, a, a film this long and this dense, and I, 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 there are plenty of films out there that are more dense, quote-unquote, than Lord of the Rings, but this is a film that is so dense and lore-filled and there's so many character arcs going on and the stories all extend for all three. You need to watch mm-hmm. them all. That, yeah, you have to give yourself to that story. And Otherwise, it's not going to work. The interesting thing is I was, like, sitting there. I was worried. I was like, oh, like, I love these films, but let me let me try and pretend that I'm watching this for the first time. Sure. How does he get through? Because I've seen the books. I attempted the books, okay. reading them. Attempted is a strong word. Okay. <laughs> They're not worded like a conventional <laughs> book. 
You know, they're, they're not spoon-fed to you, the information. Mm. I mean, anyone who knows any history about Tolkien was... He was into language. He was a linguist. Yes. He liked creating language. He created the languages and then created the stories around the language. That's crazy methodology mm, from a writing point of view. And the way he writes the books are not as if they are a dramatic story. Mm. Like what Jackson's trying to tell us. They're written like an accounting of history. Like this was something that actually happened. Mm. Not... So they're structured completely different in that sense. They're... They're clunky. They're they're wordy. They're they're um they're very much written for like that intellectual. You need to know about the this is all these things. That's mm. why that that when you watch that opening uh, prologue, I'm sitting there going, I'm just astounded about how Jackson has managed to structure basically the whole premise for the Lord of the Rings mm. films. And that very first, succinctly, yeah. And it's so easy to follow and you've got like wild names these aren't like scott and dave it's like <laughs> scott and dave like you know so you know in using that galadriel storytelling voice this yeah. this this ethereal figure played by you know kate blanchett that uh, has seen everything um and now has an amazon prime's prequel show which mm. i've watched a little okay um um but <laughs> Obviously, having <laughs> so much of that 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 crawl, just being like, oh, there's, uh, you know, there's this guy who made a bunch of rings, but then he made one that was super evil, um, and then there was a big battle. Uh, oh, and there's this guy, Sildor. He's like the son of the king, but then kills the bad guy because he reaches his hand out and he, um, he drops the ring and then some water. But it's like great, and some oh, of that stuff's yeah. extended too. Mm. Like that's extended stuff. But I, yeah, that. To me, I was like, I feel like I'm getting a lot more context this time than I remembered my first viewing. But if you watch the theatrical, you still get all the pieces mm. um, because of that Galadriel exposition dialogue. But it's not; it just feels kind of like it's almost was documentarian yeah. in a sense. Of like, here's a really succinct way to explain something that you can tell feels like it's just inundated with information and knowledge. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the other things I thought watching this film is is you can tell peter jackson is is so respectful of of the fact that this material first off the source material being something that people refer to as like one of the greatest uh, pieces of literature of all time mm-hmm. the original lord of the rings novels but the fact that so much of this story is based around law and knowledge and knowledge being passed through time lost in time and even like that opening sequence where i i loved i thought that was a really cool note that when the rings down in the, like the river or the water for two and a half thousand years and that it almost was lost to time other than these very few pieces that that keep it to life and that's when gandalf touches the ring and he's all of a sudden like inundated with knowledge of like what where this all came from yeah. uh or even just the, the the you know when we finally meet um elrond or uh, hugo weaving's character uh, that he has his own perspective of the events that happened there, and it's like they actually already went to try and to Mount Doom and destroy the ring, and and they failed. So you're getting all these pieces of information, sort of sewn into the overall story. Yeah. And to me, it's like that's Peter Jackson's way of being like stories and literature are so important, and you can have fiction and non-fiction, but they all deliver something. They all deliver either a moral or a tale or a theme. What? And that was my 
thinking is he's respecting all of that and it goes and it goes both ways this film puts such great emphasis on the physical literature like you said when gandalf goes to minas tirith and goes to the the, the archives and yeah. realizes what the ring that bilbo had all these years actually is I they just call it a library <laughs> i don't know i don't know, I don't know. i'm kidding i'm I don't kidding know. um <laughs> Uh, it's a library, dude. Um, but yeah, it goes goes to those sort of archives, and then on top of that, you know, like you've got like later in the film when they're at, uh, you know, in the mines of Moria, and he reads that dwarf's final account at Balam's tomb. Yes, yep. Um, like there's that, like you said, that accounting of history is constantly, but it's not just that; it's also through the void, you know, through these um, distinct um, accounts and perspectives. You know, we we kind of get the dwarfish pre- prejudice against, and notions mm. against uh, the elves through Gimli's character and, and talking about Galadriel without even knowing who Galadriel really is mm. and then getting completely uh, overwhelmed by her. and then it, But it's all little things. It's it's understanding like, oh, well, there's these mar- faceless riders coming after the hobbits. Who are they? Mm. Aragorn will tell you in this like... But it's it's amazing how much lore is shoved into this without it feeling expository because right. the beauty of the Fellowship of the Ring and the reason what I think this is to the credit to Jackson's character, and I think he he kind of will probably, you know, he imitates this at least. Um, I mean, you've seen King Kong, but it's like there's there's always a character in there that able to sort of embody us understanding the lore as the audience. Right. And in this case, it's the hobbits who have never left the Shire. They're a whole race of people that are that they just live in their bubble yeah and they're very like quaint lives like all they know is drinking smoking and eating and 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 looking after oh, nature vibe. and let's be real we all want to be hobbits like i know you I know, could be I'm, I'm tall enough to be one you certainly are i'm short enough to be i should say um and i think that that's so interesting because then the the adventure and, and like you said you talk about why this film is kind of great as that standalone film because it does have arcs but it still opens it up to the, the second and the third film um is that we're watching this journey particularly i mean all four of them have to cross a threshold yeah and you know if it's pippin and mary it's about gaining courage and responsibility because they are sort of irresponsible jokers sam it's about you know sort of sticking to his duty and kind of mm. he's probably the one who has the least amount of growth right um because he's kind of already in terms of where his character needs to be at the end, he's already that dedicated best friend his, from his, the get-go. His growth definitely comes more in the second and third film. But, sure, as he's but like challenged. Frodo is, is about accepting his destiny, yes. which is something that is quite interesting because, you know, I think back to other films, you know, this follows a very similar three-act structure. The death of the mentor occurs at the end of the second act. And, mm. and, and you could easily be like, oh, well, Frodo's just Luke. But it's like, not really, because... Frodo, I think, is, is so interesting because it's that... I think Luke is more inclined to accept his destiny very early on. He's just mm. a little directionless after Kenobi dies. But he's kind of accepted becoming a Jedi at the end of the first act. And it's yeah. more well, just... That's, that, is what he's always wanted. It, and and he goes and seeks that adventure, whereas Frodo is actively pursuing against it. And everything in the first film is out to kill him. I mean, he almost dies three times. <laughs> and that's not an exaggeration. He legitimately gets skewered. He gets almost, like, frozen to death. And then he gets stabbed. Yeah. And it's like everything in the world is actively telling him that he's the chosen one, but 
It's an incredibly this dangerous a, world. Yeah. This is this is an incredibly tumultuous feat. Whereas with Luke, he yeah he has adversity, but he saves the princess. He destroys the Death Star, mm. and at the end of the first film, he's a hero. He doesn't face all of his trauma until the until Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And, and like you said, like compared to this, where it's there's still a lot for Frodo to do in the next two films, but in, in his arc in this film is, is simply the acceptance and the willingness to, okay, well, this is what I have to do. And there's so much fear for him to have to do this alone and, and, and have all these, you know, the, the rest of the fellowship surrounding him and protecting him. And by the end of the film being like, no, 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 the safest way to do this for, for everyone, not just for me, is to do this by myself. And he obviously does accept Sam's help at the end because that's part of if it. Sam's does, if that doesn't emotionally move you, I'm sorry, but it was <laughs> bros like, being bros. It was so bad because it's like I've got loose into making those little comments and I'm just there like welling up because it's just this. Oh, what comments was she making? Oh, it's oh. like one of those things. Everyone's staring the pot with these two. But I think for me, the shot that hits the most is when he's tearing up on the, the beach by himself. Yeah. yeah. And it's that pushing camera. And this is the thing that I was worried going in that I was like, is this film just cool or cool uh practical effects yes, and and production value um with one of the best if not the best score like the score oh, is the score's just incredible redonkulous yeah. <laughs> um and it's so emotionally manipulative but perfect in its uh motifs oh my god it's motifs for characters are just insane um and i was worried i was like I don't remember much of the cinematography, the, right. these, these sequences. Do I, I, there are these big set pieces in all three of the films. Um, great moments, but what is tying it all together? Where's, yeah. where is what I'm thinking? What elevates this film to that real kind of perfect big budget masterpiece? And I think when I was watching it this time, I went, Oh no, there's a lot. There's a lot in here from performance point of views. Yeah. Um, which, um, and characters that I didn't reson- think would resonate as emotionally with me as, as I thought they would. And I do think each character kind of gets a moment over the trilogy. But in this film, it, I always, you know, remember particularly sort of uh, the sup- the cooler characters, the Aragorns yes. and, the, and the Legolases and their little quips because they have all of the big action pieces but sean bean's performance in this is like so good <laughs> in I, I every think, element yeah i think and this is something it was a straightforward i had but sort of ties perfectly what you're talking about i think it's the the range of characters and you obviously have characters that are much more mightier and powerful and, and are well equipped in fights and it's, it's not to say that um you know all the hobbits actually don't hold their own in a lot of the fights as well especially with the sword play but I think it's the combination of two different types of leading men. And you've got, you know, Viggo Mortison, Morgeson, who represents a more traditional leading man, you know, maybe the, the stern character from the Western uh, who can hold his own in a fight and is a very honourable man. And I think that sort of leans into the more cool characters, like yeah. you're mentioning. Uh, same with Gandalf as well. And especially, like, him and Christopher Lee, like, these true pioneers of, of of character acting and theater performance where they just just them speaking is like wow like they yeah. they can capture a room with just the might of, yeah, of the words they're back out of and forth mouth. is like 
Oh, it's it's fantastic. But then you you juxtapose that with the, your Elijah Woods and your Sean Beans and all of that. Um, not Sean Bean, geez, what am I saying? And Sean Aston. <laughs> Sean Aston, my goodness. Yeah. Um, where they're not the traditional lead. They kind of represent more the leading men of the modern day that are a little more vulnerable and meek and maybe emotional. And I think what you're seeing there is that for a film like this to have both sides and, and for a lot of your heroes to be meek hobbits that are very emotional and scared and vulnerable and to portray that in a way that really does you know, pull at your heartstrings. Their brotherhood is so beautiful. Yeah. The two of them, they're such close friends and like, they truly are going to the ends of the earth for each other. And I think, you know, if anyone ever said, oh, well, these films are too long, you could pretty much cut the first half an hour out. You absolutely can't. Mm. And I'm not talking post prologue. I'm talking that first, the up until the Bilbo leaving Hobbiton. But the, you need to see that the beauty of peace and, Mm. Peace and ignorance, really, um, that the Shire encompasses, because that's how you build up that brotherhood. And, and the fact that in the first, you know, when the call to adventure happens for Frodo and Sam, the first stint before the Nazgul shows up is kind of this fun sort of let's go on a camping trip vibe, right. you know. Um, it genuinely doesn't have that uh, danger aspect until they kind of just quickly after they shortly after they run into Merry and Pippin and we've still got that comedic aspect of them rolling down the hills and then the first time they see mushrooms they scatter around yeah, and yeah and only then does it become quite real well that that's just a juxtaposition in terms of them leaving their home something that's of comfort and 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 solitude and and even the way they juxtapose that when they when they go to that bar um, I'm forgetting what it's called. The um, Prancing Pony. The Prancing Pony. Um, not only, obviously, you've got like the change in lighting, the change in tone, and the characters around them are a bit more rough and tumble and sort of have that bar drinking culture to it. Um, but even just like the architecture where every, and the further along they go, the bigger the, their surroundings become. And obviously, that definitely becomes the case once they get to that gigantic tomb that they, they enter. But this idea that these meek little hobbits, their surroundings are getting bigger and bigger and bigger Mm. and they're fitting less and less into these environments. And yet that's part of their journey. And this is the journey they're going to go on uh, to accomplish their goals. Yeah. It, it is a truly, and I think that that a lot of that stuff comes through, through the camera and and the use of perspectives is really important. The way you shoot around uh, the sort of height difference Mm. and, you know, wide shots, you use doubles and all this stuff. But the way that, and I was looking for it too and still was struggling to see how it really is just as simple sometimes as, as putting it on one subject and having that subject look up or look down. Yeah. Um, and that's all they did sometimes, you the know, power and, of the eyeline or script and, supervisors around the world just beamed a happy smile. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, they obviously had some neat camera tricks. Like if they're sitting at a long table, one's just way further down the long table yeah. looking like you said with the power of eyeline. But yeah, there was sometimes as simple as just doing that. Uh, we'll pan the camera really far down. We'll pan the camera really far up. And, um, and uh, that was, that was pretty much it. And I just found that it's like, okay, because of these sort of height differences, where does the emotion come? Because sometimes it's like, how can a camera be that emotional when it's focusing so hard mm. on a geography of a room and geography of perspective? Right. And that's where those performances come in from the actors. Um, and like we were saying, I, I think 
the basically the four hobbits in Dominic Monaghan, Billy Boyd, Sean Astin, and Elijah Wood. They're just so good at yeah. um, hitting their marks perfectly. Um, and they're, they're quite interesting because they are that enigma where a lot of them, after you do these films, Elijah Wood and Sean Astin probably get a little bit more success, but a lot of their six, like, they don't, never going to be huge, which is interesting because of just uh, how much they're able to emote. Maybe that's because the, the roles they were in were just too big to ever be seen elsewhere, maybe. But, right, right. Um, I think it's the way they're written, it's the way they're directed too, you know, from a Jackson point of view, I think. It's the way, like you said, that, that they have really gone through those books with a fine-tooth comb and trying mm. to find where the arcs are for each of these four particular hobbits. And I put them as the focus because, like you said, a lot of the other arcs aren't really as overt. I, Legolas doesn't really undergo an arc in this film. He, mm. He's there and Gimli sort of becomes less bigoted towards <laughs> elves and, <laughs> and um, you know, obviously Gandalf's in that mentor position. So really he just sort of serves his purpose in the film. And mm. um, Aragorn kind of accepts that he's going to be king, but not really. Like he sort of says it to Boromir, but um, I don't think that really comes right. until the other film. You have, you have a, like at the ending, sort of he's dying, the dying yeah. speech. Yeah. Yeah. It's more, if anything, Boromir is the one who undergoes the major arc. You know? Right atones for his sins, has his blazer glory. Um, uh, but obviously the focus is about, I think, the four hobbits, and in particular, Frodo in this film. Mm. Well, in terms of the overall narrative structure, and this is part of Peter Jackson's brilliance at, again, not having read the original works, but how to interweave all of these many, many characters into the story and how to do it very slow. I mean, 90 minutes into the extended cut, we're still being introduced to, like, critical main characters of this entire trilogy that haven't been introduced yet and i think that's just them very carefully laying okay well let's get you really accustomed to the hobbits and the and the wizards of the world and, and then just slowly making our way through the journey is like, yeah, okay now aragorn is the aragorn yeah. yeah and he gets probably about 50 minutes in i reckon is when yeah. we first meet him and he gets a bit of alone time with the hobbits on their journey and yeah, so I, I really do appreciate the way the film sort of gently, not necessarily holds your hand, but sort of gently introduces everything to you, so you're not overwhelmed by all this different lore and terminology and everything. It is interesting because this might come back to, and this is important in terms of this trilogy, is the fact that they knew they were going to get three films ahead right. of time. I think that that changes the way you tell this story because sure. you know you're going to have more time to develop other characters. And maybe that's what allows you to introduce characters Quite like Legolas slowly, yeah. and Gimli at that, at the council of Elrond really essentially is yeah. and they get their, their first moments. Um, so their characters will get more time because we know in the second and third film characters are going to be separated, which means their development becomes heavily accelerated in that, uh, yeah in that space well they're not as part of a as a large ensemble anymore they're kind of it's a smaller ensembles between scenes yeah and that's huge um and i think that that's interesting because i think that also reflects why there was a weird scenario with the hobbits and the fact that they didn't know there was two three films it was two films for a bit and then it turned into three films at the mm. last minute it was a massive 
problem there where the first film uh, was greenlit and they thought it was going to be two films and then halfway through filming the second one, they went, oh no, we're going to make it into a third film. So it changed the pacing. And if you watch those three films, there's a massive pacing crisis going Mm. on in them. They don't have the same hindsight characters have way more wayward uh, arcs in it with probably Martin Freeman's Bilbo having, well, basically gets sidelined in the third film for mass portions of it because of, they've pretty much done his arc at that point. Um, (laughs) And I think that those films really suffer because of not having that hindsight that you have this amount of time to tell the story and, and, and changing and changing because if they'd only been given one film with the hopes of trying to get a second and third film, mm. we might've tried to see more stuff smushed into this film. Right. Exactly. Well, even like reading some of the stuff that new line was asking for, like they wanted the opening sort of expository sequence to be two minutes long instead of the, what it was like seven minutes long it yeah. ended up being. So there is that studio pressure to condense things, to bring, to push more things to the forefront of the story and to get people more excited. And, and I always take this, I can't, I can't remember. I think I remember who it said it from at Murdoch, ironically, uh, somebody to do with when you're making a feature film in terms of how to lay out your story and your characters, if someone's sitting in a theater to watch a feature film, you you pretty much have them. You know, it's going to take a lot of effort to kick them out of the cinema. Mm. So to unveil your story, slowly and methodically and to not worry as with when you know when you do a short film there's a bit more pressure yeah. to leave an impact so I, I think that's peter jackson just bringing a level of confidence into the lord of the rings not just the the one film but the the entire trilogy yeah of the people are here to stay they want to watch this and if they love the authenticity of everything that's going into these films and the faithfulness it has to the original stories then they will stick around so i think you're right i think that's a huge part of why the film has the confidence to let things play mm. out really slowly. But I want to, I want to get your opinion on one thing. Cause I forgot how much, um, Gollum was involved in this first film. I actually, I actually remembered him not being in it at all. And there's actually well, several moments where he's in it. Yeah. Yeah. He but, offers a critical point that basically calls to action the mm. entire plot. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah. Literally. I, I forgot. Yeah. He call, he literally calls out Baggins' name. Yeah, and, and that, Shire, and that, that's it. <laughs> and that's it. It set, set off the journey. But I, I, I was curious because I think this does tie into this idea of them making the three films together, or at least going in with, like you said, the confidence of mm. knowing we're going to have more time to flesh these things out. Circus wasn't cast at this point, though. Well, Andy Circus, yeah. Well, this is the thing, and I, I understand that, and I'm sure at the very last second before this came out, they were able to get a couple of his lines of dialogue that they probably already shot for the next film and snuck it in just in time for the first release because mm. his voice is in parts of it. But I, what I found really interesting is that even though his appearance in this film several times uh, is indicative of the fact that they had this all planned out and they had the budget ready to go. It's not like Dune where they, they weren't yeah. sure they were going to get a second part, um, which obviously we're still waiting on. I think is now officially delayed to next year. But... Also, this weird paradoxical thing where Gollum in this film is so much more restrained from a technological standpoint than he is in the next two films, where in this one, it feels like we're not getting much CGI at all. We're just getting, like, hand puppets or, like, really faraway shadowy shots of him or we see, like, part of his eyes and his mouth, but that's it in the silhouette. Yeah, silhouette and darkness too, so they, they really don't have to do too much. Yeah, so it's really interesting that 
they had the foresight to include him in, the, in this part of the story as much as they do, but still with the technical limitations of this film being, what, like a year or two earlier than its sequel. Yeah, I mean, these films collectively, um, and once again, Jackson, very similar to Lucas of his time, was right. he pioneered through, in this case, Jackson pioneered through Weta, um, stuff that we had never seen before in mm-hmm. cinema. From a particularly a CGI point of view, yes. um, for better or worse, retrospectively, but at the time, it blew me away. Mm. It was like after I remember watching for the first time, particularly the Two Towers one, where they develop a lot of the CGI for Helm's Deep. Yeah, um, and we'll talk more about that in sort of at a later date. But what's really important is the fact that I remember watching that and going, "Oh man, I want to learn how to do this. Like, I want to learn how to become like." this sort of CGI design. Right. Like, that was like a real call to cinema experience. Interesting. Um, but it, it's interesting because like it's groundbreaking. And like you said, this film very much harsh is away from the CGI as mm. much as possible. Yeah. It, it limits itself to two very big scenes that's that speak out with a lot of little tweaks in here and there or compositing mm. different sets and yeah. doing a CGI camera around a, a, a digital space, but mostly feels like a composite of, of physical sets that have almost just been composited digitally. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of when they're at Isengard and they're, they're the Kurabine are sweeping through and we get to that almost fourth wall breaking close up of uh, Christopher <laughs> Lee going, so Gandalf. <laughs> I'm narrating this part of the story, but... There are a few moments like that where they do, like, JNL cuts of characters narrating scenes that then lead into them actually saying <laughs> those words. And Yeah, it's interesting that he does that a few times. Yeah, they're interesting editing choice. But that one's weird because it's like... I, this time I noticed, I'm like, are you looking at the camera while you're saying, <laughs> you'd like to lead him down the glutterous, and if that fails, where then will you go? But uh, the, the big ones are obviously the Balgorog scene, which is... Once again, like you said, though an, an amazing sort of composite, the Balrog, because of its character being mostly pitch black, right. because it's a molten lava sort of situation, they're able to once again work around potential limitations of the time. Mm-hmm. That's um, a good point. I didn't think about that in terms of the, the the amount of work you can forego because of like lack of textures and things like that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's a huge difference. And, um, and then once again, the eagle that... Gandalf escapes on mm. is in at in the middle of the night, so yeah. it's that darkness. You lose a little bit of that texture. There's a close up of him on the eagle, but it's mostly like a couple of feathers, and it's like yeah. it, it can be faked. And these are interesting things to consider, especially moving forward from a fantasy CGI point of view. What are some of the big things that we've seen over the years? Well, we saw House of Dragons in the last couple of years. Prior to that, we saw Game of Thrones and everyone was talking about how janky that stuff looked. Had the same sort of budgets as as Lord of the Rings, but mm. it was things like shooting it in the middle of the daytime. Like, right. Um, it makes it tougher. If you've got more light, you yield more textures. That's a lot more things to consider. It's a lot more variables. And once again, a lot of these artists are under way heavier time restrictions too. Well, that's the big one, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think sort of the mid to early, the early to mid 40s is sort of the golden age of CGI because they actually, they knew that it was essential to get right to tell the story. And that's why you get your Gollums and your Davy Joneses well, and all of that. Also because there wasn't that many competing houses back then. Yeah. Because... You didn't have 5,000 films trying to do CGI all at once. Yeah. I mean, 
I know that there's a particular cross-section in Return of the King where certain things they're trying to animate are in the same parallel timeline as the first Pirates of the Caribbean film. Interesting, yeah. Um, and there's a big part of that. Uh, but it is interesting. There isn't that lot that competition. But there's also such a great emphasis on practical uh, creations of these orcs and urukai mm. through their costume design, which I think is deliberate. In this, and it kind of calls back to Jackson's early horror film career. Yes. And that need for having that tactile... Um, even body horror sometimes that these goblins and orcs have. Uh, not to the same extent as a carpenter's thing. Sure. But they're ugly. <laughs> they are like... And they don't hide from how ugly they are. There are moments where, like, the character of Lurtz, uh, Sauron's kind of alpha Urukai, Saruman's uh, alpha Urukai, is birthed into the world. And it's not, it a, is, not a pleasant image. It's not a pretty scene. Um, it's like out of a weird sort of silicon egg and <laughs> pod <laughs> chokes out this little goblin and then has, it's just covered in just sap. But I, I think the other thing, cause you're right, you got, they called them splatter comedies is, is the ones that Peter Jackson was working on early. And you're right. I think in terms of the horror aspects, it perfectly played into like the design of these creatures and just like making them sort of hard to look at and gross and grotesque. But I think the other thing that translate in terms of this, him being a great pick to direct these films is that there is an, an aura, especially in the first half of the film of like a comedic undertone, a bit of a silliness, uh, a, a, a lack of self seriousness, so to speak. And I think that plays into, you know, when we first meet Gandalf, he's sort of like, you know, a wizard is always on time and, and then they just kind of burst out laughing because it's like, that that's not his character at all. He's silly and playful and he's smirking when the kids are chasing him. He sets off the fireworks. And I think, like, that actually in a weird way does originate from his early works in these horror films, mm. working with these grotesque, gory images, but also doing it in a way that's almost funny. And it's very similar to the trajectory that Sam Raimi would go on from The Evil Dead to Spider-Man. And I, I think that's and a very apt comparison. It is. It's very apt. And it also comes back off, like, the first 10 minutes is just this monologue of dreary, dark, and yep. broody stuff. And then we, then it goes, oh, the ring was found by this hobbit. Oh, what's that going to mean? And then we cut to this whimsical, play school-esque yeah, world yeah. that is Hobbiton, um, <laughs> where characters are just... You know, and we get a Bilbo narration as he's writing his book about concerning hobbits, and it's like mm. we're kind of just like drunk stoners. <laughs> like, that's what we are. Like um, that's what we are. You know, um, I, th- I think that helps a-, a lot with a general audience who aren't like big sci-fi or fantasy nerds to embrace this film. Yeah, and I mean that's a big part of its success in the early days is that it did not only take its time, but take its time, you're right, with these sillier elements of like, oh, okay, we're going to follow a bunch of stoners for 20, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I think this film encapsulates the impossible avoidance of destiny. Mm. Um, and I say that because it's basically a, a, a collection of characters who irrefutably must accept no matter what the circumstances, their destiny. And mm. that starts with Frodo with obviously accepting the bearing of being the ring bearer. Yep. Um, and that definitely is sort of some summated through her, his interaction with Galadriel. 
Um, and after he, you know, in the latter parts of the film, after they get to Lothlorien, we meet Galadriel, who is this basically the the, the um the polarizing figure to Sauron hmm. is this lady of the light. She's ethereal, all knowing, all powerful, and yet is just as corruptible and susceptible as anyone else mm. to the ring's dark and evil will. Um, but what's important is that moment where he gets to look through sort of the, the well um, and see what would happen if he fails. Yep. Um, that alternative parallel line where we see basically the scouring of the Shire. Um, and it's interesting because obviously we see Frodo's moment where he truly accepts his, his destiny, his, yep. his responsibility, um, is when he opts to go by himself and it's that moment where he's breaking down the beach but there's other characters that are getting called to their destinies um, that basically and I think all of them in a way have a, a moment or at least a lot of them do I think Boromir's is accepting that he kind of actually has to die for right. Aragorn to see the importance of his role um, and there's that destiny there, that self-sacrificing point um, where he kind of concedes that his death is is not in vain. Mm. It's not for nothing. It's actually for the greater good. Gandalf is the well, same. The it's same about sparing about Gandalf, yeah. the, the destiny of Frodo. Um, he sees that he has to defeat the Balrog cause, um, and so his friends can get away. But also, so this evil is gone from mm. the world because it's wiped out an entire civilization of dwarfs um and that's that sort of accepting the responsibility of sort of taking on this darkness even if you have to like lay your body to the wayside and i think that that's what this film's kind of trying to get across Mm -hmm. and it's and the only one who does it from the get-go is sam which is why it's so important that sam has that moment where he almost drowns to the point where Luce is like, is he about to drown? It's like, can you imagine if Sam drowns in that scene? Like, That'd he be just pretty dies. hilarious. Frodo's like, ah, oh, maybe I should have let him on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> but um, to, to that earlier point you made, I love how much, how many times is reinforced that every character is susceptible to the power of this ring, the corruption of this ring, and that even Gandalf, someone who until this point is, is shown as wise and powerful, and, and even the scene when he's you know, um, raising his voice at Bilbo where, where the camera goes down, he gets higher up and the light all changes. It's like, that all just goes to show how much of a powerful force he is in this world. Yeah. And he's just so traumatized and terrified about even bearing the weight of the ring. He doesn't, t- he just, he's like, Bilbo, you do it. <laughs> you take care of it. Uh, it's a very Dumbledore Harry relationship right there, actually. Yes. But, yeah, even just, like, things like that, of establishing a character as, like, all-knowing and powerful and then showing them being terrified of the power of the ring. But the re- but the reality is the perfect balance is the fact that, and it comes back to the, the clever way of unfolding things, the fact that the first introduction to what the hobbits are as a people are, they, they have no ambition. Right. They have no drive. They're just content with yeah. their lives, which makes them the perfect bearer of the ring that's meant to have power over others to oppress others. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as we see in the film, it's, uh, no other race could bear this burden because all of them are easily as corruptible or, uh, stubborn or, uh, power hungry at, at their cause. Um, 
and we see every mo every character kind of gets a, a moment of it you know with the exceptions of sort of Legolas and Gimli, but we see other elves suffer that sort of corruptible fate in Galadriel, so we assume Legolas would be no different, and, and Gimli's solution was uh, possibly the not the smartest. <laughs> so um, it's that stone-headed nature and, and belief that for his moment is comes in the fact that he thinks Moria was this impenetrable fortress, mm. only to see his entire cousin's people genocided basically yeah. at the hands of, of the balrog and the and the, the goblins i just love these films they're just so cool <laughs> they're they're cool and i sit here and i'm like i never thought i'd have to critically analyze why i like these films. i'm glad i got the opportunity to sure because i think these films are they are genuinely brilliant and i think the heart in them um can just melt you if you're not careful like it, it i never thought a film really encapsulates the power of of love and mm. admiration, but you somehow manage to, and it takes the first half of the film in the extended cut. Like you have to flip to side B when the Fellowship of the Ring is formed, and then oh, that is, is that the DVD? Yes, yeah, so on the DVD. Oh, that's clever. At that's funny. When Elrond says, "You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring," and please switch to disc two. <laughs> and it's funny because it's that's like one awesome. of those same thing happened in Titanic, where it's like they hit the iceberg, and then it's like. Switch to disc two. I've only ever seen that in Gone with the Wind, but that's the only time I've watched a DVD over a, a Blu-ray. So oh, okay, that um, tracks. And it w- it's quite interesting because you you know, then you get the second half of the film, and somehow you manage to form all of these bonds. Now some of them have already been formed, but this unit becomes a unit. They all feel the weight when Gandalf dies. Yeah. Um. And they're just, dis- only some of them get to see Boromir's death, but there is a despondent despair by the end of the film, you know? It's this, this constant threatening of breaking up the Fellowship. And even though the Fellowship is really only formed for, like, a frankly, a very short period of this entire trilogy, that is a genuine threat. Like, these are the only people really here that are willing to make the sacrifice and to, to go to Mount Doom and do this thing. And again, they're all even encouraged by... Um, Frodo's sort of sudden bravery at the council meeting when they're all getting into a big sort of word fight and he's like I'll do it and that's the thing that motivates all of them to you know we're gonna we're gonna follow you I I will say this is a low-key highlight scene but it's just a a great amount of example of that sort of director cinematography where the intelligence lies and it's that shot of the ring with the reflection oh, of all yes. of them arguing and the fire takes but the over. fire takes over and i th- i remember i know that shot and i've seen that shot a hundred times but this first time i was like what's the context behind that shot and it's like frodo is seeing there yeah, the destruction of all these people because of their bickering and their squalor uh, you know the destruction of the world that he knows because people can't just make a flippant decision and i know that is systemic of, of Tolkien's frustration with the war. Right. Um, the Great War, the World War One, which he came out of, and the fact that that was essentially just a lot of people arguing and a lot of people died because of, you know, at least from the perspective of the writer, yeah, was because, not being able to see the forest for the trees. Yeah. So it, it is interesting because, yeah, like you said, that's his first time where he takes that sort of responsibility, but it, it's more out of quelling the squabbles mm. um, and... Uh, giving us a sense of direction. He doesn't fully accept it yet until he has that uh, last interaction with, with Boromir. 
and that last interaction with Aragorn where he says, I would have followed you. Mm. And it's, oh, it's such a bad scene. <laughs> so cool. The other thing I do, the little detail I love in that um, council meeting is that the, the cross that's sort of like chiseled into all the chairs. Mm. It's like it's like a, a bunch of knights meeting together. Mm. I like that little detail they stuck in there. Is it not the uh, one does not simply walk into Mordor it, line? That is indeed it. Yeah. <laughs> I got a, that's a meme line. And I'm like, that's yeah, a, I get it. That's a meme. Is yeah. two breakfasts a meme? What about second breakfast? I feel yes. like that's a meme. Yeah, I've seen Wait, that around. So you shall not pass. You shall not pass. That's I mean, I mean, oh my god, what a it's a classic. It's not even just the line; it's his delivery, the the intensity he, that the he brings to that. I think to me, the 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 screaming and there's a lot of screaming in these these films. There but are, yeah, like. They're, they're kind of droned over often slow-mo or like scenes where it's kind of like ethereally reverbed, yep. but, but they're just like guttural, like the Frodo Gandalf, and it's like really slow-moed, but it's like Aww. really milks it. It's really, it's really sad. Good. There's a lot of like really good effective uses of, of slow-mo. I was quite sad then as well. Cause I was like, well, I really like Gandalf that character. Yeah. I wish he was in the other films, but he's dead. I don't know what happens to him. Gandalf the Grey is definitely dead. Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah. yeah. He Sorry. must be in flashbacks as Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen is uh, credited in the other films. Yeah, there is. There's he a flashback he must in the second in, film. He must be in flashbacks. Yeah. There is a flashback in the cool. second film. Cool, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not glad. sure about the third one where he is. Oh, maybe it's like a when Frodo passes out, he has like a Dumbledore at the station kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, it's just a shame because I, I really like that character. I wish he was in more screen time in the yeah. trilogy. That's I okay. Just, I, I am blown away how easy a watch this film was because it's three and a half hours with the extended. Yeah. And I was like, oh, am I going to enjoy this? And boy, I enjoyed it. It was just, it's just cool. We haven't even talked about things like the fight choreography, which this film has probably got the least amount in terms of scale. But Okay, yeah. But... That final fight at um, God, I used to remember where it's set in, in the fo- in the forest. In the forest, I used to know the actual <laughs> um point, but nerd. yeah, I was a big nerd. <laughs> um, uh, it's just awesome. Even that final battle with the Aragorn and and Lurtz battle, um, who's the general mm. of the Urukai horde, um, it's just so like choreographed and he learned to do all that himself because Viggo Morton's but that, very, yeah uh, that's very it. uh method their swordsmanship but just the bow and arrow like all of that stuff is is it's just so enticing because it's easy to fall into that idea of like okay well he here's like a dialogue scene then an action scene a dialogue scene an action scene but it's like I think I think it is the consistency of the entire trilogy that that really brings those scenes together with and 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 it goes back to like Peter Jackson's King Kong where the way he lays out, like, traps for his characters to overcome. Like, oh, here's a pitfall of these creatures, and here's, like, a log that's going to fall over. And, and he does it so well in all the Lord of the Rings films, where it's not even just about sword fights. It's about, like, literal obstacles, like, yeah, running through the cornfield and things like that. And that comes back to one of his big influences, is another film we've covered on the show, The Princess Bride. Ah, um, was nice. the geography used, particularly in that Anigo Montoya um, fight. Yeah. It goes for, I think, 13 or 14 minutes in that. But mm. the way that they use that entire scene and that setting um, is so awesome. And it's 
it's great what Reiner does in that film, and, and Jackson does it in the same here, particularly you know, in the weather top sequence, we see a little mm. bit of it, yep. but we see a lot more of it when we get to that Moria Balan's tomb fight, when the cave troll kind of dictates the geography of the room. Yeah. Um, it's even a great moment when, when the troll's chasing Frodo, and it's just like this almost like comedic little blocking around this pillar as they keep going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Like, even just to wedge a little moment like that between all the fighting is really clever. Yeah, it is great. And we and it's one thing he shines with is how he, even in this, where he's got all of the fellowship in this this fight, and it's actually the only... these This film's the only one that does, obviously, all the members. But the way he manages to break up his big fighting set pieces is so impressive. Mm. Um, um, and in the context of this film, yeah, like that fight is where we get to start to see some of the... The even comedic aspects, the fact that Sean Bean's character gets flung across the room and, and Aragorn throws a dagger at this orc that's about to stab him and then he gives like a little... <laughs> a little nod. Like yeah. a little cheesy nod. <laughs> and you're like... And then Legolas does one of his elf things where he hops on the chain and shoots him in the back of the head. And yeah. There's so many like little... Again, just moments. that little added dose of silliness. But this is where... And because this is a director's corner, this is where I'm going to be like, I this is where the hobbit loses me is he okay. takes those little little comedic kind of the little more slapsticky moments which there are still there's enough in here i think the last fight with all of the urukai has no comedic sense to it right. almost it's it's serious it's quite intense, it's just the boys yeah. now being serious the boys. i mean there's a sequence where i think legolas kills about four of them from one spot and it's like that really nice wide just shot. that yeah that long elongated yeah, shot it's a great choreographed that, yeah. long shot but um, the Hobbit goes crazy with its slapstickness, and I think of the barrel scene in in Desolation of Smaug oh, yeah. as they go down the river, and they got characters. They got who GoPros are like, in there as GoPro. well. GoPro, still weird to think of GoPros. That, that's in insane. In that absolutely <laughs> insane. But it's like the the one where the, the big fat one like breaks and he turns into like oh, a yeah. uh, oh the like, two arms like bust through the barrels yeah. with swords and I just to me it's like, it just got too, too much. comedic yeah yeah I I think unexpected journey's fine like it does it it passes I've so always said Smaugen five armies I love precisely fifty percent of the Hobbit trilogy that's about probably where I sit there's probably about fifty percent in there I really like the Ken- the Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch dragon Smaug um, Martin Freeman sequences yep. I loved. Yep. Big fan of that. Yeah. There's probably an, uh, probably about 50% in there. And then there's fifth, There's probably about 30% I loathe and detest. Okay. And then about 20 I can be like, shrug my shoulders at a bit nothing. But the other context you got to remember when I say that, I'm coming from a place where I watched the three Hobbit films first. <laughs> so weird. I know. <laughs> I watched them as they came out and then I watched... Lord of the Rings several years later. So all the stuff at the start of Fellowship of the Rings where they're sort of talking about these stray ideas about, you know, that dragon he once fought and, like, you know, Bilbo's yeah. old adventure. I'm watching it being like, oh, I know all of this. Yeah, all <laughs> I have all of the context di- uh, Frodo's dying and it's Mr. Bilbo's trolls. Yeah. Like the trolls that's in the daytime. Yeah, I had, a, I had all that context, which yeah. was quite funny. As I almost I felt like Gandalf in that moment. Yeah, you don't need it. Like, obviously, no, you don't of course need not. it. But it's a big difference. I think what it is for me is it's the, the physical feats that the three films undergo. Like, Jackson's mm. wanting to build these massive sets and stuff. And I I just think there's nothing better. 
And this felt like, and from a director's point of view or even a film franchise point of view, and we'll probably come back to it quite a bit, but the the wanting for particularly a lot of New Zealand personnel to right. be on these films, to, to be working day in and day out to create these films and these big set pieces from a digital design point of view, from a uh, special effects point of view, mm. from a, a prosthetic point of view, from a, a stuntman point of view. It's just a Herculean effort. Yeah, and you, um, and you could say, it's like, yeah, like I mean, most films, there was so much more work put into it than we can even imagine, even as filmmakers watching this stuff. Because, I mean, it goes back to that the first minute of the Fellowship of the Rings behind-the-scenes thing I watched is, I think, uh, the ADs trying to dance around the mold on the floor or the, or the moss mm. that they like, try not to step on. It's like, that is the level of detail that, that people don't think about. It's not only are they creating these gigantic worlds and casting thousands upon thousands of, of crew and cast and extras and etc. but they're like, oh, also we're working in a land where we can't step on the certain things. We need to like put mats down everywhere. And it's all the stuff nobody ever, ever, ever mm. thinks about. And not a single coffee cup in a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you, Game of Thrones. <laughs> that that baffles me. I don't know how that was even possible for that cup to be. It was just they lost. They lost like, the plot. It, anyone could easily have masked that out in the VFX spotting session from start to finish. How no one saw it. It's crazy. But like, like I said, like every film you can think of has more work put into it than you can imagine. But this this trilogy, like it is the most Herculean thing I've ever seen and and it's been well over 20 years now since this first one came out in fact I think we're about to hit the 20th anniversary of all three of the all three of them exactly and I don't think because you think about these other monumental films like I guess you know the later Avengers movies and that but it's like they're all shot in green screen studios mm. you know their costumes were made after they wrapped shooting and I think that, <laughs> that that's where I sit and I go I just I don't think you can you can really fathom the efforts that went into this film, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the, the block relationship with the other two films, but there were times where it would be like, oh, it's raining outside, we can't lose a day, let's go into this gymnasium, build a set out of nowhere and, and do this scene that we know is obscurely wow. in the third film with Sam and Frodo, because they were supposed to be doing this scene, but... There's a monsoon outside. Jeez, yeah. And it's just this, like, level of coordination. Like, these, this was, like you said, it was an ongoing project, particularly for two and three films, of, of 18 months yeah. on the same project. That is insane. And they weren't over by any stretch. They were on time. Yeah, wow. That's it. And like, like you said, it's like uh, you think of other films that have, like, really extended shooting periods, like The Exorcist or Apocalypse Now, where it's just like... The, the, it feels like those films were stretched out because of lack of decision or just like, let's just shoot that, you know, just shoot everything we could think of. While with this, you're right. It's like, because of the enormity of the project and the money that went into it and, and the risk, at least, you know, at the start of the project in terms of, oh, well, you know, are we going to, are we going to make all our money back from just like book nerds with this film? Like, they, well, I don't think that conception was there, that this was going to be a huge mm. blockbuster film to have that, all come into place you can't afford to just skip a day oh wait for the rain to, to feather out it's like you're right you need to be that correlated and that precise with the schedule where you mm. can do something like that Let, let's shoot a scene from an entirely different film today 
and build the set on the spot because we have to. We don't have the wiggle room that a yeah. lot of other films do. So it's going to be cool to talk about. Completely admirable. Zeke, what's your highlight scene from the Fellowship of the Ring? So this one's been this one's been playing in my head. Okay. Um, there's a lot of scenes that are very powerful and very interesting and mm. um, amazing set pieces. As, as I said, I, I think the Boromir death is still one of my favourite death scenes mm. I've ever seen in film. I think it hits like the mo from the moment Lurtz walks up the hill, fires his bow, and hits the first one, second one, and third one. <laughs> Um, and then to have that moment when after Mary and Pippin get taken away, where he's ready to just, from point blank range, skewer him, basically. Um, but I'm going to go with a, a scene that's kind of in the middle there. Okay. Um, where they're in the middle of Mines of Moria, and it's the, the dialogue between... Um, Sir Ian McKellen's Gandalf and, and Frodo, as they're... He has no memory of this place. Mm. Um, it's... A powerful Miyagi sort of uh, uh, scene, but the importance of it is is we start to see the aggression side of Frodo come yes. out um, with um, obviously Smigol or, or Gollum, who has been following them from afar. But we we hear about sort of Smigol and Gollum's thing, and and what's particularly interesting is even in just the context of this film, not knowing what happens in the second and the third film. Yeah. Um, we we hear in Gandalf's sort of discussion that, uh, well, the line is like I uh, pity. I mean, the key word is yeah. pity here, and in, in that he's you know like oh, I wish he had already been killed. Yeah, and and Gandalf pretty much says that oh well, you shouldn't like. Are you willing to make that sort of judgment? That's a big judgment, and that's one that we shouldn't take like kind of lightly. And there's yeah. that moment where sort of Frodo recoils because it's something that he's almost conflicted within himself. Why did he say that? He would have never said such a thing not too long ago. Yeah, and, exactly. And that's the effect the ring is having in that subtle, nuanced way that it's not affecting him, but it, it is obviously going to affect him. Just it's like his, mind, more, his general mindset. Yeah, he's going to become more aggressive and desperate and, and that. But what's interesting is he, he sort of has that, moment where he challenges Frodo but then kind of brings it down to this sort of teachable lesson but mm. the important thing is that what I'm talking about that unescapable destiny or the refusal of destiny and or the inevitability of our destiny um, that this film is really trying to iron home as particularly through Frodo mm. is the fact that you know Gandalf goes I still think Gollum has a part to play in all of this so that he comes just saw the other films he just did. He just did. <laughs> but it, but it's interesting because then you go back to, like you said, as, as a man that has watched The Hobbit before Lord of the Rings, and I'm going to cite yes. this now. Okay. Is, and we see it still, you could still say it from the, the, the film in isolation also says this, that, that it goes to Gollum, it abandons Gollum, Bilbo finds the ring. But as we find out in The Hobbit, Bilbo does have a chance to kill Gollum. And... What's interesting now, retrospectively watching it, is you sort of go, okay, what if Bil Bilbo kills Gollum in that, that sequence? He, he kills him. Um, Bilbo then never gets found by Sauron, at Correct. least. He lives, yeah. he lives... There are no witnesses, so to speak. Yeah, he lives for longer, but obviously will become more like Gollum mm. the longer it, it spans on. Um, and then Sauron grows more and more, potentially to the point where 
that moment has to happen at that time. Everything kind of had to happen the way it happened. Yeah. Um, there, you know, ever since Isildur turned his back on destroying the ring, there has been no other opportunity to destroy mm. the ring. Um, and that's where it's interesting because it's that moment where Gandalf is saying that you have to, uh, basically, um, accept that he has a role in this and, and we don't know what will happen will happen. And it's a powerful scene, I think. And it's yeah. one of those moments where it then gets followed up by him saying it wish he had never came to him. So this comes back to that refusal of destiny. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he gives off those beautiful, those beautiful sort of lines where he's saying that, well, we don't get a choice in some of these things. Sometimes this stuff just sort of happens. We have to accept it. Um, just as everyone here has accepted that their responsibility is to help you get there mm. um, by no bond or no oath. Um, it truly is a fellowship in that sense. And it's a powerful midpoint moment. Um, yeah, and it's, it, for me, it's because um, I noted that scene as well. And, and like you said, Bilbo's growing aggression and darkness and the attitude. And, and like you said, going back, it's like the events kind of do have to play out the way they do for, the, for you know, spoilers for the next couple of movies uh, for things to kind of, you know, turn out okay in the end. So... I mean, that's just, like, a very key pivotal point in Frodo's arc of, you're right, accepting his destiny and accepting his newfound responsibility. Mm. And, and he can wish it never happened the way it is, but it's a, it's a little late for that now, isn't it? Well, what about you, Jake? I think, you know what's funny? Because for me, it was between that scene and the council meeting. Um, and, and like I said, I love that it all leads to, like, the little bravery moment that Frodo has where he says, I'll be the one to take the ring and all the bickering that comes before that but it, it is the first time in the film where you sort of have a good amount or good chunk of all the characters that are pivotal to the story together in a room and really talking out and fleshing out mm. the reality of, of this ring and how to destroy it and and the task ahead which is going to be incredibly difficult so i just i love it. it's almost like a, a refresher and a breather from a story that so far you like you're like we were saying earlier you're in bilbo's shoes and you're sort of trying to catch up with all the different uh, elements at play and the responsibility of the ring. So it kind of feels like a breather in terms of, all right, now everyone's here. Let's sort of recap where we're at in the story. It's, it's amazing. That's 80-something pages in the book. That really? Book. Wow. Yeah. And he's condensed it into this very easy-to-consume five- to ten-minute scene. Yeah, excellent. So I would be incredibly interested to read those 80 pages. Yeah. So the big question, Jake... Yes. The big question is, extended cut or theatrical cut, which one did you enjoy more? It's kind of hard to say because I was sort of removed from both of them, but I will say the extended cut, nothing stood out to me in terms of like, oh, this could have... I mean, yes, there is a version of this film where you can cut it down from like three and a half hours to two and a half hours. Or what. There is a version that exists, but it's like we said earlier, the, the density and the length of this story and, and all the elements at play you have to give yourself to the story. So I think the length actually does help in the sense that once you've given yourself to the story, you're completely invested in the world, its characters, the story, to the point when, when the credits roll at the end, you you are sort of like, oh. Yeah, I'm like... I feel I, like weirdly teleported back out of this world. I, I, when this film finished today, I was like, I can't wait. I'm ready to watch the second one. Like, <laughs> straight away. <laughs> um, and it's amazing that something that is... 24 years old turning 25 next mm. year facilitated that response still right. like 
that genuine eagerness to what happens next. It's a similar thing. It's a similar feeling that I had with the before trilogy, where it's like you watch the first yes, one. Yes, like, yes, I felt the same like, way. I need to know what happens next. They meet up in nine. What happens in nine years at the end of the first one? Yeah. Why did it take nine years? Where are they going to be in nine years? And... <laughs> Goddamn. Oh, desperate to see how the story concludes. Excellent. Well, Lord of the Rings is currently out on where, Jake? Netflix, Stand, Prime, Binge, Paramount Plus, pretty much everywhere you can get, except, except. the extended editions. Uh, not so easy to stream, Zeke. You're going to have to essentially buy them, whether you buy them digitally or on DVD. You should buy them. Just buy them. There's a 4K collection of the trilogy for 100 bucks. Oh, sorry, 99 bucks at JB Hi-Fi. Not, not a bad value, I don't no. think. But hey, speaking of all those streaming services, Jake, what's new to streaming services and cinemas near us? There's not a lot, actually. The only ones that caught my eye in terms of the streaming world is Gen V coming to Prime, mm-hmm. which is the boys' spin-off show. Yes. Um, which I... The first three episodes come out this week, and I'm keen for this because I think, like, a, a high school, college setting of the boys sort of cross sky high. I mean, it's a clever idea, and I think they can get away with a lot of crude stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, coming to Apple TV+, Plus, this kind of snuck up, Zeke. This is exciting. Flora and Son sees a single mother struggle to keep her rebellious teenage son out of trouble until she retrieves a guitar from a dumpster. It stars Eve Hewson, Owen Kinlan, Jack Reiner, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and is directed by none other than John Carney. Wow. So we're getting some more musical hits from our boy. That's on Apple? That is coming to Apple oh, TV+. Plus. Of course it is. Uh, just get a, just a seven-day trial. Yeah, just get a trial. You can watch season three of Ted Lasso too. Here you go. That's the last one, isn't it? Yep. Might as well. Might as well. Might as well get onto it. Now, coming to cinemas, a few interesting things. You've got Gareth Ed- Edwards, The Creator, which is a quote-unquote mid-budget sci-fi epic set against the backdrop of a war between humans and artificially intelligent robots. So I don't know much about this film. I heard a lot of buzz about The Creator. Very, like, high-spectacle CGI I guess, like, a Dune-esque epic, but it's an original IP from the director mm-hmm. of Rogue One. So, I yeah, I there's a lot of hype going into this film, from my understanding. I wonder why. Because everyone knows that Rogue One is the <laughs> only one out of all of those new films that everyone genuinely loves. Everyone, in quotation marks. Um, no, look, I'm... Come on. It's <laughs> another great death scene in that film. Yeah, when they all die. No, the robot dies. Oh. oh. There's a particularly so sad. powerful death scene. But they all do die. It's the best part of that film. No, I'm not being facetious when I say that. I love the balls to just kill off every single character you've spent the last two hours falling in love with. Yeah. Except for the fact that I didn't fall in love with them. Look, I've, I think the creator's going to be quite good. I don't understand how you have Ben Mendo as your more key villain. Films like the creator Look, coming. I'll out. admit the one thing, and I will recount, is the fact that there's too much Moff Tarkin in that film. Oh, yeah, that's oh, that's for me. Oh, that boy. is the big thing. I'm like, I will accept you take a star off the film for that because there it's is way too much. As... It, it, ben Mendo should have been the main villain because it's Ben Mendo. It's, uh, they, they, were this close. they were this close. <laughs> they were this close. <laughs> this is close to greatness. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, so we got the 10th Saw film, Saw X, 
comes out and sees a sick and desperate John Kramer. Well, hey, I'm sick and desperate right now. Look at that. Travel to Mexico for an experimental medical procedure. As it turns out, he discovers not a cure for his cancer, but a scam to defraud the most vulnerable. Wait, okay. Okay. I mean, my brother's going to force me to see this, so I probably will talk about this next week. Okay. We shall see. Uh, Fair Play is playing at Palace Cinemas and explores the uncomfortable collision of empowerment and ego and an unexpected promotion at a cutthroat hedge fund pushes a young couple's relationship to the brink. Seems kind of violent and sexy. Excellent. So there you go. And Style Bender is a documentary playing at Advent Cinemas this week. Explores the career of UFC fighter Israel Adesanya. I don't know much about UFC. And finally, previewing at Luna Leaderville this Sunday, the 1st, 1st of October, is Shadar, which is a young Iranian mother and her six-year-old daughter find refuge in an Australian woman's shelter. I believe that's a not a documentary, like a dr- dr- drama okay. piece. Um, but it looks good. I've seen the trailer pop up every now and then. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff coming to cinemas, which is exciting. Not a whole lot coming to streaming, but that's okay. Well, it's all right. We're going to be moving on to another film. Mm. But Jake, what are we watching? I think it's fair to say, Zeke, next week on the show, we'll watch The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Dun, dun. (laughs) The fate of the world will soon be decided. The dominion of evil grows even stronger. There is a union now between the two towers, Barador, fortress of the Dark Lord Sauron, and Orthanc, stronghold of the wizard Saruman. The peril of the Ringbearer deepens. An unseen danger draws closer, for there is another who hunts the ring. Frodo and Sam arrive in Mordor with the help of Gollum, and a number of new allies join their former companions to defend Isengard as Saruman launches an assault from his domain. Did I pronounce any of those correctly? Um, everything but uh, Isengard. 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 Close. I wrote I I S is E N N. Isengard. Isengard. Yes. Fair enough. Okay, that's fair We're enough. Taking huh? the hobbits to Isengard. Oh, fair enough. Yes. I probably should have remembered that. Yes. That's okay. Well, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn a bit more about it next week when I watch for the first time the extended cut of the two towers. Is that the longest one? Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know I'm if kidding. it is. I think Return of the King might even be longer. Oh, fair enough. 
I think they go actually go they incrementally crack up. And crack. Oh, okay. I guess that makes so sense. It's longer than fellowship, but not as long as uh, return. Here Return's got a lot, but a return. To be honest, there's a lot of epilogues in Return. There's a couple, but it's mostly fighting stuff. Oh, okay. I feel like in Return, and it actually would say, oh no, there's some real critical. There's a massive extended cut scene in this film, in the second film, mm. which I think drastically elevates two characters. Interesting. Um, okay. But I won't say the two characters and won't say the scene until next week. I'll find out then, I suppose. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sci-Show Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers.